0: So, just so you know, we are aware that the the Advent candles are on the floor. Typically, in a church, you have them on the platform. Our, our team uh, rightly and wisely recognized that having an open flame next to me preaching was not a good idea. <laughs> so they moved it. So there's going to be. So I hope it's not a distraction for you guys. Well, if you have a Bible, open up to John John's Gospel, chapter one. If you need to use the pew Bible, it's going to be on page 833. John chapter 1, page 833. While you're turning open to John's gospel, let me read you some lines from a Christmas carol that you're very familiar with. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the Spirit felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Well, this morning obviously begins the beginning of our Advent series entitled "The Weary World Rejoices," and as you can probably tell, we get the theme from that famous Christmas carol, "O Holy Night." For the next five weeks, we'll be following the themes associated with the lighting or the the, the candles on the Advent stand: hope, peace, love, hope, peace, joy, love, and light. And this morning's theme is hope. So, you should be at John chapter 1. We're going to read these uh, 16 verses, verse 35 to 51, and we're going to be forced, as we read these verses, to answer the question that Jesus asks so strategically in verse 38, which is basically, what do you want? What are you looking for? Thankfully, though, we're also going to find that God as well is looking for something, and that is men and women who are looking for a Savior. With that, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. The next day, again, John, being John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Some translations will also include in a subscript, which also means rock. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, well, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Firsts are important milestones, aren't they? A baby's first step. A baby's first words. Your first date. Your first kiss. Your first anniversary. The first time you drove a car. The first job you ever had. You you get the point. Firsts are milestones. In the same way, I've always thought it was interesting, what are the first words of Jesus in each of the four Gospels? The reason I bring that up is if if you were here when we studied the Gospel of Mark, remember I taught you that as the Gospel writers are writing their Gospel accounts, they're pulling from just massive amounts of material. I think it's John's gospel that says, if we were to write down everything that Jesus said or did, we could fill the libraries of the world. And so the gospel writers are pulling from massive amounts of material. So whether or not you knew this, when you're reading a gospel account, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you're actually reading an interpretation of Jesus' life. What I mean by that is that the individual author, whether it's in this case John, is pulling from all this material and and collating it together, curating it together, and putting it together so that you get a particular picture, a perspective, or narrative of who Jesus is. And that's partly why we have four Gospels, not simply just one. Even with four different perspectives, four is not enough. We wish we had more, but what we have is the four. For example... If you remember our study of Mark's gospel, what was the first thing Jesus says in the gospel of Mark? see if any Bible scholars remember. If you have a red letter Bible, it's really easy to figure out. Just flip over and you'll find the first red letter and you'll know what he said. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel and bam, off to the races. In Mark's gospel, that sets the tone. Remember, in Mark's gospel, they're not talking about Jesus' childhood or any of that kind of thing. It's not the prologue of John, the philosophical issue of the Logos. It is just action into action into action. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 1, Mark compresses all the material that takes Matthew three chapters to unpack. Mark is writing for an audience. And I, I, if you remember, I call it the Hollywood gospel, the, a, the ADHD gospel. Because he just gets to the action every, every paragraph. By contrast, if you read um, Matthew's gospel, the first thing Jesus says in Matthew's gospel in chapter 3 verse 15 is that this thing needs to be done, speaking to John the Baptist about his baptism, so that all of scripture might be fulfilled. And it's interesting that Matthew's gospel is written to the Jews. And so Matthew's gospel has the most amount of teaching that Jesus basically verifies he is the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. Unlike Mark, who's not writing to the Jews, he's writing to the Gentiles, there's very little of the teaching from the Old Testament. It's just action after action. By contrast, what is Jesus' first words in John's gospel? Now, I love the way the New Living Translation, some of you might have an NIV, the way it translates it. They translate the Greek, Zetete. What do you want? Now, if you're reading the ESV, it sounds more Bible-esque, right? Look at verse 38. What are you seeking? Really, what Jesus is saying is, What do you want from me? What are you looking for? Interesting, John's gospel begins with the question that really matters, doesn't it? What are you looking for? What do you want? What are you looking for? What do you want in Jesus? In fact, John uses 21 verbs of seeking, looking, finding, and following in these 16 verses alone. In other words, more than once in every verse, this theme is cropping up in this section of Scripture. So what is the answer to the question? When Jesus says, what do you want? What is the answer to the question? I think Andrew, who we just read about, he gives us the answer. And it's not there in the text. I'll explain how I come to that conclusion. But I think this is the answer to the question Jesus is asking, and this is what Andrew would say. I want to know if you, Jesus, if you're worth it. Are you worth my life? Are you worth following? Are you the hope that the weary world is looking for? Now, you might be asking, why why would you say that? Go to your text. Uh, Verse 40 and verse 41, one of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. Simon Peter's brother. Look at verse 41. He, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now, you might be thinking, well, how did you get that? Where are you getting that from? So let's back up a few verses and let me explain why I think this is the question that Andrew's asking in response to Jesus when Jesus says, What is it that you want? What are you looking for? And Andrew says, We want to know if you're worth it. Here's how I come to that conclusion. You know, verse 38, Jesus kind of turns to them and throws the gauntlet down with that question What do you want? Now, keep in mind, Andrew and the other disciple that goes unnamed, we think it's actually John, the, 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 the apostle, who wrote this gospel. They are both disciples of John the Baptist. And we know from the other gospels that they're called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they are very similar. And the, the word synoptic comes from two Greek words that seen together, so there's a lot of overlap. We know that John the Baptist had been talking about Jesus' ministry kind of from afar, and so John's, John the Baptist's disciples have been listening to John as John is saying, he must increase, but I must decrease. You, you guys need to be following after him. And so in our passage here, it says that the next day, John was standing there with two of his disciples, and they looked, and Jesus was passing by. You imagine the Baptist saying, Andrew, guys, remember I've been talking to you, here's your chance. So you imagine Andrew and the other unnamed disciple, which I'm just going to say is John, they walk up to Jesus, and they know he's just passing through. They can't have this hugely theological, dense conversation right on the spot, so they get a little bit nervous, you know, when you kind of meet somewhat of a celebrity, and so they punt, look at the verse there, and they say, hey, Rabbi, um... Okay, where are you staying? Because they're saying, maybe we can have a follow-up conversation. So Jesus says, well, come with me and see. You see that at the end of verse 38. And so they go with Jesus, and from about 4 p.m., look at the end of verse 39, from 4 p.m. into the evening. Now, just to be clear, in your text, it says the 10th hour. That's because the Jews begin and end their days at 6 a.m., Unlike the Romans and us, we begin and end our days at midnight. The Jews begin and end their days at 6 a.m. So the 10th hour of the day is 4 p.m. And so they say, hey, Jesus, they get a little bit nervous. Where are you staying? Maybe we can talk later. And Jesus says, come with me, and we'll see, for it's the fourth hour or the 10th hour of the day. We can imagine that from 4 o'clock on, who knows, maybe to 10, maybe to 11, who knows how long, Andrew and John, are peppering Jesus with questions. John, our master, our rabbi, the Baptist, he's been talking about you and we want to know, are you who you say you are? And what happens in verse 40 is from Andrew's lips, we get his conclusion from the conversation he's been having with Jesus since 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He finds his brother, Peter, we found the Messiah. Andrew's convinced, yeah, this man's worth following. This man is worth it. I don't know about you, but I kind of wish I was in on that Bible study. What was that like for Andrew and and John, disciples of John the Baptist saying, and keep in mind, they don't don't have the Bible knowledge you do. What was it like to sit down with with Jesus, that rabbi that has become very famous, and ask him questions? I imagine it was probably a lot like the conversation, the Bible study that Jesus had on the road to Damascus from Luke chapter 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, speaking of Jesus, interpreted to them, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, excuse me, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Notice that, that phrase, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Now look back in your text in John one forty-five. That's exactly what Philip tells Nathanael in chapter 1 of John, verse 45. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now if you're paying attention, you should be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I get why Andrew believes that he's the Messiah and why Andrew told his brother Peter he's the Messiah, but how does Philip know that Jesus is the Messiah enough to tell Nathaniel that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, look at verse 44. John is kind enough to tell us. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of who? Andrew and Peter. Again, John is crafting this narrative. Why does John put this comment? Who cares what town he came from? Well, it's important because Philip knows this. He's telling Nathaniel he's the Messiah. And we as readers go, how does Philip know this? Oh, I know why Philip knows this. He lives in the same town as Andrew. And Andrew, after meeting with Jesus, got all stoked and went off and told Peter and probably told Philip. And now Philip believes and tells Nathaniel. You see what's happening here. By the way, just as a side note, this is how the early church and when the church grows best, this is what's going on people get excited because they've realized Jesus is worth living for. And they go tell their family and they go tell their friends. Just like Andrew and Philip do here. Friends, if you are a Christian, is Jesus worth following? Is he worth your life? To these guys, and, and, and I always do this, right? If you've been a Christian Longer than like two years, there's a blessing with that. But if you're not being intentional, the downside is you forget what it was like not to be. Do you remember the moment you realize, what am I doing? He is who he says he is. I need to repent. I need to do whatever it takes. Do you remember that? And then the excitement to then turn around and talk to other people. Even if you didn't hardly know anything, you just took what you knew and you gave it. That's what we see happening here. Jesus isn't just one more character in the Bible story. They realize, like you realize, he is the story. You see that expression here, Uh, Moses and the prophets there in verse 45? Whenever you see that, and that might sound familiar to you, whenever you're reading in the Gospels, you might hear Moses and the prophets. That is shorthand for everything that's written in the Old Testament. Yeah, that is. So the, the Hebrews, when they thought of their old, their, the scriptures, they t- thought of it in th- two or three massive divisions. The law and the prophets, or the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so what Philip is saying to Nathanael is saying, hey, Nathanael, that God, that, the, the, everything that the Old Testament was talking about, we found who it is it was talking about is Jesus. Imagine for a moment Andrew and Philip, and then later Peter and Nathaniel, going to the scriptures, looking back and seeing that in fact all of the scriptures talk about Jesus. Can you imagine them as good Jews who grew up in the synagogue now thinking about, that's right, Moses in the law did talk about Jesus everywhere. As a matter of fact, as we look into the law in Genesis, we find that Jesus is the breath of life. When we look at Exodus, we realize that Jesus is the Passover lamb. When we look at Leviticus, we realize that Jesus is the high priest. When we look at Numbers, we realize that Jesus was the great wall of fire that protected the people of God. And then when we read Deuteronomy, we realize Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law. What in the world? But it doesn't end there. They start looking into the prophets, and they look at Isaiah, and they say, how could we have not seen that in Isaiah, Jesus is the servant of the Lord? In Jeremiah, Jesus is the prophet who weeps for the people of God. In Lamentations, it is Jesus who is the new mercy from God every morning. In Ezekiel, it is Jesus who is the new temple. In Daniel, it is Jesus who is the stranger in the fire that saves his servants. What in the world? And they go out and they start talking to their friends and family. Friends, here's the thing. Evangelism works best not because you know a ton of stuff necessarily. Not because you went through evangelism, explosion, training, or some kind of program or out of obligation or duty evangelism works best when it flows from a heart of worship because that's exactly what's happening here evangelism happens to your family to your friends when your heart is overflowing with worship because you realize jesus is worth it because he is the hope that humanity's been looking for he's not just a hope he is the hope and man it just flows out of you so here's a question We have to ask ourselves as as we're looking at at, at Andrew and Philip, excuse me, yeah, Andrew and Philip and Peter and Nathaniel, does your worship also lead to witness? Does your worship lead to witness? Or has it become maybe a little bit like Old Testament Israel, a little stale? Maybe you've forgotten, and maybe you thought that worship and all the privileges of, of being part of God's people are just for me. When in fact of the matter, God says clearly that you and I exist to proclaim his excellencies of him who called us from darkness into light into the world. Now, when we studied the book of Revelation, since then I've been wearing this band here. It always reminds me of the persecuted church. I've talked about this a little bit. So for the last year and a half, my my mind and heart has often been to the persecuted church globally. Um, So I couldn't say this in any other context, but in the American context, I can Have you become, have we become so caught up in Christian things, right? Like Christian concerts, Christian coffee houses, uh, the, the evangelical empire that's grown up in the last couple of decades. You know, Christian conferences and retreats and Christian that and Christian the other thing. I mean, Christian CrossFit, you name it, right? Have we got caught up in Christian things so much that we don't do the Christian thing? which is what Jesus told us his last departing words in Matthew 28, go out into the world and make disciples. Right? Is that something that drives us? Friend, when was the last time your prayer was, Lord, make me like an Andrew, and so I bring the gospel to family members, or make me like a Philip, so I bring the gospel to friends? I am happy to talk to your family and friends, Because that happens. People come up to me, okay, will you talk to my family? Will you talk to my friends? I'm happy to do that because I want crowns. I mean, jewels in my crown. But God's got you in your family. God's got you with your friends. Get after it, right? Are you praying that way? Lord, help me to bring the gospel out there. I think you can say the genuineness of your worship of God can be seen in the desire you have to be a witness for God. Let me say that again. The genuineness of your worship of God is probably best seen in your desire to be a witness for God. Because God loves people. He loves those people out there, right? And he loves you in here if you don't know him. And he loves us even if you those that do know him too. we got to get after it like we see happening here. And we don't have to worry. And thankfully at this church, I don't, I don't think it's apathy that keeps us back from being witnesses. That's not the case. But maybe it's something along the lines of we think we need to be more. More holy, um, more intellectual, more hip, more cool, whatever it might be, right? But Jesus never recruited the righteous. He never recruited the intellectual. He never recruited the socially hip. He never recruited the put-together ones. He recruited, for our example, these disciples. We don't have time to do a character study this morning, but if you read up on these guys, they were pretty stellar. Mm Mm-mm. They were, you know, most of them were like blue-collar guys, fishermen. Uh, I think at least one of them was a tax collector. A couple of them were what we might call conspiracy theorists. They weren't the brightest bunch out there. Just speaking to note, if you're a conspiracy theorist, I'm not saying you're dumb. I'm just saying, right? Okay? You know what I'm talking about. I guess the point I'm making is that, friends, it's good news that our failings do not disqualify us from being a disciple. It is good news that spiritual heroism is not what gets us into heaven. There is only one hero in the gospel, and that's Jesus. As a matter of fact, the most important qualification to be his disciple is one thing, and we actually see it here uh, that John's kind of highlighting it for us, and that is to know him and who he is. As a matter of fact, in these 16 verses, you may have picked up John, like, loads it heavy with Christology, that is, the, 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 doctrine of the, the doctrine of Christ. Look back in the text. Verse 36, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Verse 41, he's called the Messiah. Verse 49, the Son of God and the King of Israel. Verse 51, the Son of Man. Every one of those titles have a, their unique nuance to what their role is, whether it's to be divine royalty or a sacrifice on our behalf. But every one of them share in common that Jesus is the hope of humanity because he came to save. And that's the point Jesus makes there in verse 51. You can look at it. Jesus is making an allusion to uh, Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, verse 12. So this is it in Genesis. And speaking of Jacob, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So back to our text, Jesus tells Nathaniel when Nathaniel just recognized who he was, he called him the son of God and the king of Israel. And Jesus said, look, just because I knew you, you believe in me, trust me. You trust me and you're going to see amazing things. And then he quotes Genesis twenty-eight twelve. But let's read the way Jesus quotes it here in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nathanael, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying is, Nathanael, you're putting your faith in me? That's good. Because guess what, Nathanael? I'm that ladder that bridges heaven and earth that Jacob dreamed about. But The great thing about this ladder is you're not going to climb this ladder to God. That's not how this works. In the ladder, God climbs down to us in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is telling Nathaniel. You're going to see amazing things because it's not about climbing your way up to God. No, God put this ladder so he could come down to us. Friends, isn't that what Advent season is about? It is about God coming to us from the words of old Holy Night, a thrill of hope. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Why does he say that? Why is that line in the, in the carol? He answers it in the next phrase. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Friends, with the arrival of Christ, man no longer needs to grope in the dark to find God. We don't need to stumble along trying to find the ladder to climb up to him. That's not how it works. He makes it really clear. Here's the ladder. He's climbing down. In the life of Christ, humanity does not have to wonder what are the answers to the biggest questions in life. This is one of them. Humanity does not have to wander without purpose or meaning. Humanity does not have to bear the weight of their own sin and guilt before God. We do not have to fear the specter of death because a new and glorious morning has dawned with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these first disciples were the first to truly realize this. And their excitement could not be contained. But, and this is actually easy to miss, did you notice that twice in our text, in verse 42 and then verse 47 and 48, John, the author here, is portraying Jesus as the one who already sees and knows the very men who are actually looking for him. Now, it's interesting the way John creates this tension in the narrative because Christ frames the whole interaction with his opening question in verse 38. What are you looking for? When, in fact, Jesus knew exactly what he was looking at when he asked them, what are you looking for? In other words, here's where I'm going with that, friends. This whole passage, Jesus is seen as someone who knows people thoroughly, right? Right? And not only sees into them like he does with Nathaniel in verse 47, but he calls them to be what he knows they can become, even though they're not at that now. Look at verse 42 when he's talking to Peter, for example. So he, speaking of Andrew, his brother, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, son of John. Eh, you're going to be called Cephas, which means Peter, which, which means rock. Now, if you know anything about Peter, rock is not how you would describe him right now. Peter is unpredictable, he's impulsive, he's rash, he's volatile. But Jesus sees in this young man not what he is, although that is true. He sees him now, but he sees what Peter can become, and he calls him to that. In the same way, he did the same thing with Philip. And and this is the amazing thing. The problem is uh, one of the greatest things I learned when I was in Bible college and to, and to learn Greek, was not to be impressive and walk around with a Greek New Testament. Was actually slowing down and reading every word and trying to make sense of it, because the problem is we read so well we skip past all these amazing details and intricacies here. Do you notice, Philip, of the four disciples we read here? He's the only one that Jesus actually goes to and says, you follow me. The other three, so 75% right now of these four, they have to go to Jesus or somebody has to bring them to Jesus. But it's only Philip that Jesus looks at, zeroes in, and says, you follow me. What I find interesting is if you look for Philip in all the other gospels, he's not a star. Like If I were to ask you, what does Philip do? Yeah, no, pretty much no idea. Like, we know Peter. We know James and John, the sons of Zebedee. We, we know Judas, but Philip? Oh, there was a disciple named Philip? Because every time Philip shows up, he's in the background. He's, just, he's actually just in the list. But what's interesting is, soon after he's mentioned in the list, within a verse or two, Philip is bringing other people to meet Jesus. And so you kind of get this impression that Philip's not the standout character that Peter is. A son of thunder like James and John. You get the impression that Philip is just kind of a kind of a mild-mannered guy. Not the temperament you'd think to have as a disciple. But yet he faithfully, with his excitement, is always saying, You gotta meet Jesus. He's the one that we've all been waiting for. And I find it interesting that of all these disciples, he's the one Jesus goes to because Jesus sees what Philip can be. Jesus also knows Philip's temperament. And I wonder if the Lord said, look, if I don't go after this guy, he's not going to come after me. And if I don't reach out to him, he'll never be what I know he can be. Whether or not that's exactly what's going on, I don't know. But when you step back and look at Scripture, it's actually striking how often Jesus approaches people, not on where they're at, but on what they could be by grace. And I hope, I hope just, just that thought is comforting to you. That when the Lord looks at you, he doesn't just see you where you're at in, in maybe your good times or bad times. He sees what you can be by grace. Let me give you some illustrations. In, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee that I was talking to, he walks up to them and tells them, hey, drop your fishing nets because from now on, you're going to be fishing for men the rich young ruler in in Luke chapter 18 Jesus saw the potential in this young man unfortunately that young man didn't see it in himself and he called out to him follow me do this and follow me but he never did but the point is Jesus saw what he could be Luke even says that he looked upon him Jesus looked upon him and loved him in Luke 19 Jesus is walking by and sees Zacchaeus, what everyone else saw as a betrayer of the people of God because he was a tax collector working for Rome. Jesus looked at him and says, I see a son of Abraham and I see the joy that will come from him. Zacchaeus, come on down, I'm having dinner with you. Finally, John chapter 4, last illustration, the woman at the well. Everyone looked at her and saw a woman of ill repute. Jesus saw a wonderful evangelist that would be touched by grace and radically changed. And all of Samaria heard the gospel through her witness. Jesus sees you not just as you are, but what you could be. Friends, he knows that you're going to blow it. He knows how you're going to blow it. He knows when you're going to blow it. He even knows why you're going to blow it. And to the answer to those questions, we don't even know. And yet he still is saying through the gospel, follow me. I hope that comforts you. Jesus is not looking for extraordinary superheroes of this story. He's just looking for people who say, you're worth it. You're worth my life. The poet Emerson once wrote this. And it's old English, so I'm going to try to enunciate because it's a lot of thou's and these. Listen close. Emerson writes this. Couldst thou in vision see thyself the man God meant? Thou nevermore couldst be the man thou art content. Let me read it one more time. Couldst, could you, in a vision see thyself the man God meant? Thou nevermore couldst be the man thou art content. Content. I think it's pretty clear, but just in case it takes a few times like me, what Emerson is saying is, look, if you could see what God saw in you, you'd never be satisfied with what you are now. And I know that cuts against the grain, right, because we're all about, accept yourself, you're beautiful, Pff, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm not, you're not, the Bible's clear, I'm a wretch, you're a wretch, right? We need a Savior, that's okay, we can embrace that, right? Um, if you could see what God sees in you, you'd be like, oh, "I'm never going to be satisfied with where I'm at." But here's the thing: our Lord is easily pleased, but He's not easily satisfied. I hope you can balance that tension. He is easily pleased by any movement you have towards the God, towards holiness and purity, and away from sin. He's so excited, however small it might be. You might feel like I was a failure. I gave in again. I drank again. But the Lord says, oh, but you fought it for 10 minutes longer than the last time. Oh. But he says, but I'm not satisfied. Next time, five minutes more. Next time, 10 minutes more. Next time, you're free. I like what Emerson says. Friends, that's one of the greatest reasons the Christian, the gospel, the Christian faith can guarantee hope for the people of the world because it doesn't depend on the people of the world. It's all on Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that we don't have a role. Just like uh, Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, they had a role. They were asking genuine questions. They were actually pursuing Jesus. But the truth of the matter is Jesus was superintending the whole interaction all along. They just didn't know it. Because just as Jesus was asking these men what they were seeking, Jesus was seeking them. We know this because Luke 19 tells us, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's where that carol gets it. The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. So, what do you want? What do you want? Well, we know the answer to that. We want life. We want fulfillment. We want meaning. We want things to go our way. We want all those things. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in England in the 19th century, said this, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else. That's true. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't good things in this world, but we weren't made for this world. We were made for glory. Not the cheap trinkets of this world. And Spurgeon is really getting, as to you understand, the emptiness of all that, you'll never see the fullness that is actually in Christ. And the key is actually in the carol with that line, long lay the world in sin and error pining. When you come to realize, man, this world, as beautiful as it might be by God's common grace, it is a world in sin and error And pining means to long for something else. You get to the point where you realize, this world has ultimately nothing for me. And when you get to that point, you realize everything is in Christ. Let me close with the words from this poet that makes the point. Christ for sickness and Christ for health. Christ for poverty, Christ for wealth. Christ for joy, Christ for sorrow. Christ today and Christ tomorrow. Christ my life and Christ my light. Christ for morning, noon, and night. Christ when all around gives way. Christ my everlasting stay. Christ my shepherd, I his sheep. Christ himself my soul to keep. Christ my leader, Christ my peace. Christ hath wrought my soul's release. Christ my righteousness divine. Christ for me, for he is mine. Christ my advocate and my priest. Christ my teacher, Christ my guide. Christ my rock, in Christ I hide. Christ the ever-living bread, Christ his precious blood hath shed. Christ my master, Christ my head, Christ for whom my sins hath bled. Christ my glory and Christ my crown, Christ the vine of great renown. Christ my comforter on high, Christ my hope draws ever nigh. This is exactly what the Advent season is to remind us about. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the greatest gift the gift of your son father forgive us for not valuing him for not seeing him as worthy of our lives to be followed and even for those of us who are believers we feel the deadness of our own the remnant sin that we cannot apprehend and glory in the gift of the son forgive us of that sin yet in your kindness and mercy you don't see that You see the fact that we cry out and we love you and we want to be more but cannot be. And Father, you give us compassion and love. Lord, we pray that there would not be anyone here that does not understand that grace and has not been a recipient and partaker of that grace. Father, do what you did for Philip. Follow after them and say, follow me. And I pray, Lord, you give the gift of repentance so that they might respond in the affirmative. Lord, and for those of us who are believers, may we follow you every day, not to our comforts, not to our peace, not to the things that we want, but to the obedience that leads to life. So that we, like the psalmist, can say, you make known to me the paths of life, and your presence are pleasures forevermore at your right hand. Joy. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.